The reading today comes from Psalm 23, and it's from the Common English Bible version, bottom of page 5. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He lets me rest in grassy meadows. He leads me to restful waters. He keeps me alive. He guides me in proper paths for the sake of his good name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they protect me. You set a table for me right in front of my enemies. You bathe my head in oil. My cup is so full it spills over. Yes, goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the Lord's house as long as I live. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Chris. I think one of the things that many of us face as a challenge sometimes in our lives, or maybe a question that we come up against in our lives, is we wonder about our purpose. We wonder, why am I here? Why did God put me on this planet? Because we think that in some ways there's some kind of grand purpose that we're supposed to fulfill. And so we go on a journey for that, and we think about what that might mean for us. What is our purpose in living? One of the things that I know about our human interaction is is that all of us are a people of influence. That may be one purpose, is how we influence those that are around us. Because we all know that our lives intersect. We're not private little individual units that have no impact on the rest of the world. All of us. Our lives intersect. And as such, we have the power to encourage people. We can also discourage them. We have the power to engage. We have the power to dismiss. We have the power to empower someone else, we have the power to destroy as well. We all know that we are people who have influence, sometimes bad, sometimes good. We think of it. We think of what our purpose is, how we move through life, and how we answer that purpose, how we find it. The question that I I was thinking about this morning is, is to think of it this way as a metaphor. What is the wake that you are going to leave at the end of your life? What is it that will spill over onto others? What will be the wake that you will leave? And when Margaret and I started dating 24 years ago, her parents did not like me. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? They, They didn't like me very much, right? Because they were a good traditional Catholic family. I was a Baptist interloper, right? They already had one son-in-law that was a Baptist, and I think they thought that that was absolutely enough for them. So along comes another one. So they didn't like me all that much. And their family had a tradition of during the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, things like that, they would go down to their lake house, and they would spend the holidays there. I didn't get invited to the holidays early on. I had to stay home by myself. Eventually, one summer, I got invited down there and started having the opportunity to go to their lake house. Ken and Mary lived on the, on the south shore of a big arm off of Highway 7, and it was off of Lake Road 713. If you've ever traveled down across 7 from 65, you go across and you get to Climax Springs, you go about another 6 or 7 miles, and you get to Lake Road 713, you take it north. You take it north for about 8 miles. Now, For the longest time, it seemed like it took forever from the turnoff to get to their lake house. Actually, it felt like it took longer to get there from that little point than it did to get from Lee Summit to the turnoff. And that's because it was a gravel road for a long time. 
right? So you'd drive up it really, really slow because you didn't want to ding up the bottom end of your vehicle. Eventually they paved it, so actually it became much quicker to get up and down 713. But they lived right on the shoreline of the Lake of the Ozarks. They weren't back in one of those nice coves or long branches or anything like that. They were right on the shoreline, which means you had easy access to the lake. You could go east or west on the lake pretty quickly. Go, go a little bit to the east, and you'd find yourself at Mimosa Beach. And the kids always loved to go to Mimosa Beach because you could go in their little store, you could get ice cream, and then when you were done with your ice cream, you could go out and you could jump off of their slide in their dock, and you could swim in this little play area that was there. They loved to do that, or go over to the cliffs and jump off of it, or go around a hurricane deck and have lunch or something like that. It's pretty easy access whenever you were out on the lake. They had a nice big pontoon boat, which meant that you could ski and you could tube behind it, and they had a pretty decent-sized two-passenger sea-doo. And the one thing about the sea-doo is the kids loved to get out on the sea-doo and ride on the, on the lake, particularly after a really big boat had gone by. Any of you ever done that? Right? Jumped through the wake behind one of those big boats. It's fun because you can get a little airborne until you get too silly with it and you crash and you hurt yourself, right? Anybody ever done that? Want to admit it? Yeah, I would raise my hand. I've done that. Lost my breath once doing that. But you, you just wait for the boats to come by and you're out there sitting there having fun playing in the wake that they leave. Now, the interesting thing about it, though, is is you also know that around the dock areas is a no-wake zone. You're supposed to just barely get out before you hit past the markers that indicate where your no-wake zone is. And then you can get out and you can speed up. The only thing that, that was disturbing about all of this is whenever the big boats would go by... They'd leave such a big wake that when it got to the no-wake zone, it didn't pay attention to the little buoys. It just kept right on going into the shoreline, right? And next thing you know, your dock and your boat and everything like this was rocking and bouncing and clanking and making all kinds of noise. Wake. The power of water being moved to leave a wake. I was thinking about that as an image for many of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. What is the wake that we are leaving in this world, right? Some of us may be under the impression that our faith is a private matter. And so faith-wise, we don't leave any wake whatsoever. We're not supposed to influence other people. Rather, we're supposed to be relative in this society. And, and we're supposed to be people who are accepting of all. And so we hold back our wake in some ways. We think maybe it's better to be more like a good human being or a humanitarian whether we teach and model what it means to be just simply respectful of others and be a good neighbor, that that's going to be our wake. But to have a message about who Christ is, that's too private a matter. So we leave no wake when it comes to our faith. Now, now I'm one that's under the impression that our faith should matter, even in our public life, not just our private moments, but in our public life as well. And so we should leave some kind of wake and impact for the kingdom of God and for the cause of Christ. And so I believe that we're supposed to be a people who have something that comes off of us, some kind of wake that represents what we believe in our faith tradition. And I believe that that's what God calls us to do as well. Now, the 23rd Psalm, as we read this morning, I was thinking about this, has kind of been like a high day for all of us that appreciate the kind of standard or traditional things of the church, right? 
You've had the Lord's Prayer. You've had the 23rd Psalm three times this morning. You're going to get the affirmation of faith here pretty soon and the Gloria Patri. What else is missing today, right? You're getting all the high standards. But when you think about the 23rd Psalm, we're reminded every time that we read it of all these things about the presence of God, right? That God is with us, even when we might be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That God's with us in times of trouble. And because of that, we can fear no evil. We can sit and dine right at the feet of our enemies. When it's time, there are times where we feel alone, we know that God is with us. When it's times of sorrow, God's rod and staff will come and comfort us. When it's times of blessing, we know that God's anointed our head and our cup will overflow. We praise God for those kinds of things. And we're reminded that with God, God is pursuing us with goodness and with mercy, that they are following us each and every day. The writer of the psalm is talking about the presence of God in the best of times and in the worst of times, and that it isn't temporary that God is constantly in pursuit of every single one of us for the purpose of goodness and mercy being a part of our lives. God wants that to be recognized, evident, for each one of us. But I want you to think about the 23rd Psalm, and particularly that phrase, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, in just a, a little bit different way. What if the psalmist was talking about his wake, and how he influenced the world around him? to think about what was being left from his life as goodness and mercy that was following his trail, following his wake? What if these are the words of the psalmist that he was hoping would be his kind of legacy? When I think about it, I couldn't imagine any better words as a compliment or as a eulogy that could be said about any one of us. Goodness and mercy followed them in every interaction. Goodness and mercy were the result that we had in our encounters with our family, our friends, our neighbors. I would like for things like that to be said about me when I die, that goodness and mercy were part of who I was. And I think that could be a life perspective for all of us, maybe a purpose, a vision that each one of us could have as well and carry forth to know that God's calling all of us to be people that share goodness and mercy through our lives. That we don't have to be giants of the faith to do this. Simple, humble people following God. We don't have to be a Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches and five, five, or 3,000 people come to be uh, people of faith. We don't have to be Paul who travels all across the world to share the gospel and the good news. We don't have to be a Martin Luther who stands up and protests against the abuses of the church. We don't have to be a John Wesley, a Mother Teresa or a Martin Luther King Jr. to be used by God. All of us, in some measure, in some fashion, God can use every single one of us for the purpose of goodness and mercy. And to know, and to know that all of us will have an impact, even though our names might might not be big names, like the ones we just read. I remember growing up, all the times that I got a chance to go to my great-grandparents' farm, and especially the weeks where we got a chance to stay, because we really enjoyed getting a chance to stay there. On my great-grandparents' farm, there was an old chicken house. There hadn't been chickens in that chicken house in probably 50 years, because it had an old 30s Ford in there and an old piano. 
had some bridles and some saddles and a whole bunch of stuff they had been storing for a lot of decades in that old chicken. I actually had a couple of feral cats in there. And we tried to catch them several times, but never really had any luck at that. They also had an old smokehouse on the property. They hadn't smoked meat in it in over four decades. It had all kinds of stuff in it as well. There was a root cellar on the property, and if you were lucky, you were the one that got to go down into the root cellar and get the canned goods. You had to brush off the spiders, typically fight off a black snake, and hopefully not encounter a rattlesnake down there as well. There was an old barn that was on the property, and that barn used to lean to the west. It just had kind of that little lean to it, to the west. My great-grandfather used to keep a a small wagon in there, and then he'd also usually have a team of either mules or Shetland ponies because he'd enter the county fairs, and he'd go to them with his little wagon and his team, and he'd pull them around all over the county squares. They had a nice-sized garden, fed them comfortably, had things like beans and corn and lettuce and carrots and radishes and had some tomatoes. Whenever we would go down there, if we wanted to go fishing or we wanted to ride a horse, my grandmother would hand us a hoe. That was the first thing. You had to go to the garden, and you had to go hoe some weeds out of the garden. There was an old farmhouse on the property as well. It had electricity and had running water, but it had no indoor facilities. They still had an outhouse in the early days when I was a kid, but they got a mobile home, which meant that now they had all the good inner workings of a good home. The couple that lived there, my great-grandparents, my great-grandfather was a hard-working man. He got up early every day, 5 a.m. in the morning, and he ate the same breakfast every single day. Bacon, eggs, toast, and coffee. Had the same breakfast every day. He'd go out at the, after having breakfast and he'd work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. He'd go out and complete a job or find work that he needed to do. He'd come home about 5 or 6 in the evening. My great-grandmother always fixed a hearty meal. It was usually meat, potatoes, gravy, and a vegetable. Comfort food, right? Back in the day of comfort food. Seldom did my great-grandfather ever take a day off, and never did he take a vacation. And he died at the age of 75 in the parking lot at Carter Waters down at 22nd and Broadway. My great-grandmother was a hard-working woman as well. Cooked, cleaned house. She worked in the garden, picked the vegetables, canned most everything that she possibly could. She kept my great-grandfather's books and she paid the bills whenever they had money. I remember one thing in particular about her, though, is that she would sit down at the kitchen table with a comb, some bobby pins, and a little mirror, and she'd prop it up. She'd take her hair down out of the bun that it was always kept in. She'd comb it out and then she'd weave it back together and put it in the bun that she always wear. I never saw her wear her hair down. She always wore her hair up. She was a part of the local Nazarene church in Butler, Missouri, a faithful member of it. She gave generously to God. She served whenever possible. And during the daytime, she would listen to Christian radio, and she'd go from her favorite channels by hour and change the channel to each one of those little Christian programs, and she'd listen to the same ones every single day at the same hour of those days. She taught her great-grandchildren what it meant to read the Bible and what it meant to pray. And you know what? My great-grandmother's name isn't one of those giant names of the Christian tradition. You're not going to find her in any of our annals or record books. She was a simple, humble Christian woman who lived outside of Butler, Missouri, and yet her wake was huge. 
especially for her great-grandchildren. Beloved, be careful. Be careful what you assume about your wake because you just never know who it might wash over. There was a man by the name of Ed Kimball. Ed Kimball was a volunteer Sunday school teacher. He had a group of hyper boys in his Sunday school class. Everybody thought that Ed Kimball would eventually get to the point where he would just simply throw in the towel because of all of these little boys. But, but he kept pursuing them with goodness and mercy. And because of that, one of the little boys came to faith in Christ, and his name was Dwight L. Moody. Ever heard that name before? Dwight L. Moody, Moody was a famous preacher of his day. Moody, under his ministry, also had a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman come to faith. And Wilbur Chapman became an evangelist under Moody's uh, uh, service and witness. One day Chapman was speaking, and he was giving—he was at an engagement, and a professional baseball player was in the audience. And that professional baseball player gave his life to Christ. His name was Billy Sunday, another famous preacher. Billy Sunday gave his life to Christ, quit baseball, and took on ministry. But another man in the crowd listening to Chapman preach that day was a guy by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was this scholarly, dignified gentleman. This gentleman decided to go ahead and and pick up the ministry of going from town to town to preach and to have little revivals and tent meetings and things like that. They said that he even bought a hearse and put signs on the side of it and would drive through town in his hearse with the signs announcing when his meetings were. He came to a little town called Charlotte, North Carolina, and there a group of boys vowed that they were not going to go attend his services. But, but one boy, a lanky, sandy-haired teen by the name of Billy Frank, as all of his friends called him, decided that he would go. He was kind of curious as to what this guy was, was bringing as a message. So Billy Frank went, he listened, and under the ministry of Mordecai and Ham, Billy Frank gave his life to Christ and decided to enter ministry. We know him formally as William Franklin Graham, Jr. We know him more informally as Billy Graham, the great American evangelist whose traveling crusades would touch nearly three billion people. If you don't think it's important to have a wake that influences others for faith, you just never know who might get missed out along the way. Or if you think your wake is too small to have any effect, just be reminded that one man who really none of us ever really knew, that one man kept his wake of goodness and mercy, of faith, and from that God had a purpose and fulfilled it. So you see, dear friends, you may not have a grand vision from God that spells out some particular massive purpose for your life, but I do know this. I think God's purpose for every single one of us is to leave a wake of goodness, a wake of mercy when it comes to the end of our days. So here's what I want you to consider this morning as you think and as you pray. Do you believe that God's calling you to leave a wake? Because that's what faithful followers do. Do you see how your life can have a wake for the cause of Christ? And in that, do you see that it also could be a wake of goodness and of mercy. Would you pray with me? Merciful God, in these moments as we come and we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive communion today, we think about what you have called each one of us to be and the ways in which we interact with the world around us. 
Maybe today we just simply need to focus on those words of goodness and mercy and to think how our lives emulate that. The ways in which goodness and mercy comes forth from us because that's what you have extended to us. Oh Lord, through the power of your Spirit, help all of us to leave that kind of wake. That one goodness and mercy knowing that through it your great purpose may be worked out in a way that we can't even conceive or know we ask this in Christ Amen So I want to invite you to